Friday, mate, 40 here, and uh, just had a really good week last week. I didn't do any live streaming. I was just out collecting money, and I did some A-B testing, and I found that that when I'm collecting money, right, when, when I collect money with a smile and a cricket bat, much more effective than just collecting money with just a smile. And I think there, there are deeper spiritual lessons here. I mean, sometimes... We have to strap on our tactical gloves. We have to pick up our cricket bat of truth. And, and we have to go forth, all right? We, we just can't rely on radical love and inclusion alone. Right? There's a time for love, and there's a time for the fist. Right? There's a time to read books, and, and there's, there's a time to, to pull out the old cricket bat. There's a time to be nice, and there's a time to be hard. So it's a complicated world out there, far, far more complicated than uh, we can really figure out on our own. So let's go. Let's roll. I haven't been streaming for 10 days. I've got so much wisdom to share with you. Man, these tactical gloves are a little tough to click things with. Okay, here we go. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. So the question of who blew up Russia's energy pipelines to Europe, which is not just a question in the news, it's a historical question. We've addressed it a couple of times already. Is not really much of a question anymore. So on television, they're assuring you that obviously the Russians did it. Vladimir Putin sabotaged his own pipelines. With his nation at war, Putin intentionally destroyed Russia's most vital national asset. Now, why, you ask yourself, would Putin do that? Well, because, because, well, actually, no one's explained why Putin would do something like that. Bad people do bad things. That seems to be the idea. Former CIA director John Brennan showed up on CNN the other day to add do his version of the story. And it was clear right away that this was no ordinary cable news segment. Brennan was instead conducting a scientific experiment designed to determine just how stupid CNN viewers are. Now, these are the people who believed Joe Biden when he told them COVID was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. These are the ones who think men can become women just by saying so. So clearly they are highly credulous. But the question remains, just how credulous are they? What won't they believe? Well, in the name of science, John Brennan decided to find out. Watch. Do you think Russia is behind the sabotage of the pipelines? Well, I think all the signs point to some type of sabotage. These pipelines are only in about 200 feet or so of water, and Russia does have an undersea capability to that would easily lay explosive devices uh, by those pipelines. I think this is uh, clearly a, a, an act of sabotage of some sort, and, and Russia is certainly the most likely co uh, suspect. <laughs> Do you think the Russians did it? Hmm, that's the anchor. Do you think the man with four bullet holes in his head committed suicide? Oh, yes, says John Brennan. The Russians are certainly the most likely suspect. Well, of course they are. Did you ever doubt it? Once Putin got done electing Donald Trump president and then finished creating Hunter Biden's fake laptop and dropping it off at a Mac repair shop in Delaware, Putin said about sabotaging his own natural gas pipelines, which were his main source of foreign currency and leverage over Europe. That's how tricky Vladimir Putin is. Obviously, his next move will be nuking Moscow, all part of his diabolical plan to achieve world domination by destroying himself. That's effectively what John Brennan told CNN's viewers. Did they believe him? Sure they did. John Brennan used to run the CIA. He knows which lies work. He's an expert. 
Now, Tony Blinken, by contrast, is not an expert. He's a failed rock musician who somehow became the Secretary of State of the United States. He's, of course, happy to lie, does it a lot, but he's not especially good at it. At the beginning of last week, Blinken was pretending to be baffled by the sabotage of Nord Stream. No one benefits from this, he said. Not in a million years could he imagine who would do something like that. It was just unfathomable. That was Tuesday. By Friday, Blinken had dropped the pose and admitted that actually we did it. Now, Tony Blinken didn't use quite those words, but there was no mistaking what he meant. Watch. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant, and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the years to come. Now, we don't have a super long attention span, but this was pretty compressed in the space of like four days. So last Tuesday, the largest act of industrial terrorism in our lifetimes was a baffling crime, said Tony Blinken. But by Friday, that same event had become, quote, a tremendous opportunity. In fact, a tremendous strategic opportunity for the years to come. It's a good thing. Now, that's an admission. That's the clearest admission we're ever going to get. No one could miss it, least of all the Russians. The Biden administration is responsible either directly or through proxies for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines and the environmental catastrophe and the economic collapse that will certainly follow. That is true. It's done. So the question is, where does that leave us? And that's the problem. This act leaves us, the United States, with no option but total war with Russia. There is no off-ramp now. There is no way out. We are all in, no matter what that means, no matter where it goes. Are you shocked by this? Was there a vote on this? Did someone ask your opinion? No. But it's been happening for months in slow motion. It's been hidden from public view by the near total blackout imposed by America media, media outlets. She probably didn't know any of the details. For example, in March, the Turkish government tried to broker a peace in Ukraine, and they came very, very close. It wasn't reported widely. Ukraine was prepared to guarantee neutrality, meaning it would not join NATO. That's what the Russians wanted above all. And in return for that, the Russian government would withdraw its forces from Ukraine. And that might have been a neat solution. Certainly for the rest of us, the global economy wouldn't need to be destroyed. Nobody would die in a nuclear war. Negotiations to that point advanced to the stage that Vladimir Putin pledged to meet with Zelensky to sign a truce treaty. And Zelensky... Hey, David, uh, what's going on, bro? Yeah, thank God. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How, how was your Rosh Hashanah? Uh, thank God. I didn't go to shul. I just uh, laid, though, but I said all the prayers and, uh, you know, felt a little bit meaningful. So why did you stay in? Um, yeah, I, I just didn't really feel part of anything, yeah. you know, because I stopped going to shul because of COVID-19. And now, you know, they have things back open, but I, I just, I kind of fell off from it as like, uh, like, um, you know, tough to say, you know, just like, uh, avoiding, uh, you know, social, uh, awkwardness or just like questions like, you know, also, uh, Rosh Hashanah would have been packed. I probably would have had to stand. It would have been a whole bunch of, uh, you know, most packed day of the year. So I'm not sure I had a good reason It just, uh, you know, fell out of social contact and, uh, you know, 
maybe going through an identity crisis. I, I've met so many people going through the same thing as you, that once they got out of the habit of, of practicing Orthodox Judaism with, with a particular congregation, with a particular minion uh, due to COVID, they've never really restarted. It's like once you quit a habit, like uh, going to a particular minion, it uh, takes a lot of effort to try to restart it. Yeah, I mean, back when uh, we were talking about things that surprised me and, you know, it kind of that I'm not really part of the Jewish community, even though I went to top schools, um, you know, I'm half Jewish. I've done a whole bunch of things for the Jewish community, but I'm not really, uh, you know, integral part of the Jewish community and COVID-19 really hit home. You know, just when, you know, everyone had their pods or something, like no one called me, um, you know, no one probably really seemed to miss me. And uh, so, so I feel, still felt strongly Jewish. I made Kiddush. You know, I, I packed my fridge and uh, had good food. And, and I actually said, like, the whole prayers uh, that they say in shul, or at least right through it. But, but I, I didn't feel, you know, Judaism is a communal religion. So I feel pretty comfortable in my Judaism. I, I even feel pretty comfortable as part of the Jewish people. Uh, but in terms of, like, a congregation or the you know, the Orthodox community, I don't, I don't really feel part of it. And, uh, you know, maybe you have, uh, closer ties where, where, uh, you feel more part of the, the community. Well, I do, but, uh, there, there are times when I felt closer and there are times when I felt more distant. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's certainly not a given. It's, it's a relationship that requires a lot of work. You can't just, uh, coast. It's only COVID. I mean, you're right. Like, I always went to shul on Shabbos, holidays. Like, it was only COVID that I stopped going to shul. And uh, if it wasn't for COVID, there's almost no chance I would have stopped going to shul like that. Because, like, no, no matter how depressed I was or alienated or what personal crises, uh, identity uh, issues or whatever I was going to, I always went to shul. So it was, uh, like you said, COVID that... Uh, got me out of the habit of doing it. And once I broke the habit, um, it, it, it's hard to reform the habit. Yeah, so I, I noticed people going to shul, but they're going there now primarily for social reasons. So the the fire, the, the fire of Torah, the fire of Jewish observance, or, or the fire of like keeping up with the with the Cohens, so to speak, in, in Orthodox Jewish life is very communal and, and somewhat competitive. But I noticed for a lot of people who still go to shul, the fire has gone out due to COVID. Like that fire got disconnected and they've never plugged it back in. So they'll, they'll still show up to shul for social reasons, but the commitment to, a, say, attend Daily Minion or to attend like Daf Yomi or any of the more rigorous commitments, those have fallen by the wayside. Yeah, and like, ever since I came back to Detroit, I, I never really felt too socially connected to synagogue. Like, I bounced around, um, you know, like the Russian shul um, in, uh, you know, the Orthodox community and, you know, the liberal school shul, the, the young Israel closest to my house. And, uh, you know, I, I was able to, I guess, succeed, you know, good people in all those shuls, but I, I never really felt part of that. As we're in New York, I felt you know, like a part of what was going on, it was interesting. And, and I had, uh, you know, friends and people that uh, were kind of excited to see me and uh, you wishing for me to do well. And I never felt that locally here in Metro 
Detroit, unfortunately. So what's the Four Amigos show that you recently appeared on? God forbid. Um, Diana Ploss is running for governor of Massachusetts. And God forbid it, like her platform is kind of like Patrick, Patrick Little, largely anti-Semitism. So uh, she has teamed up with longtime revisionist uh, Jim Rizzoli, who I guess has been an active revisionist for like 25 years, who's like a 70-year-old man and ironically lives together with his uh, twin brother, 70-year-old twin brothers. Um, so Charles Moskowitz, you know, I'm still doing the regular stream with him. And E. Michael Jones now is writing a book on the Holocaust narrative. And, you know, Charles talks to E. Michael Jones regularly and they kind of you know, argue back and forth. And, uh, you, know, you know, Charles wanted to confront him on like, you know, possibly is, you know, E. Michael Jones a, a, deni you know, a denier. And, uh, you know, so E. Michael Jones' position is unclear. We'll see he's coming out with his, like, magnum opus, not on the Holocaust itself, but the narrative of the Holocaust and, uh, you know, the use of the Holocaust, although he's mentioned some things that might hint at the fact that he's leaning towards revisionism. So E. Michael Jones did an interview with this guy Rizzoli and Diana Ploss shortly after talking to Charles, and I, I guess this they live in like a more rural part of New York. They don't deal have regular dealings with Jews, and they wanted to you know he wanted to debate a Jew and speak to a Jew, and you know Charles Moskowitz is a free speech guy who speaks to all sorts of people, so he spoke to Charles. And it got a little bit, uh, you know, unfriendly. Charles left the call and uh, didn't want to talk to him again. Um, but, uh, you know, so he told me they want to talk to me. And, uh, you know, because I guess they hear, like, you know, Duvid's a Jew who speaks to counter-Semites and, uh, you know, knows a lot about World War II. So I called into their show and instantly, like, Rizzoli was, like, on the gas chambers. Like, you know, like, they didn't, you know, like God forbid, he's certain they didn't exist, and he's talking about like chemistry and and uh, you know just like instantly like hi I'm Duvet, um you, you know so it wasn't even like hi what do you you know so it was just like straight to the gas chambers God forbid, and you know Diana Plus like God forbid, it was uh it was like I was in junior high school again, you know like Brundlefly was like making making fun of me, it was funny when I left you know, like after like thirty minutes, um. I left and I was like, okay, God bless. Have a great night. And, uh, your Diana was like, he was like, you have a great life. Not, it was like, I said that in high school. Like, I remember there was a period like in the eighties where people used to say that, like, uh, you know, like the, the not, I don't know if it was like in Wayne's world or something like that. Um, but yeah, she's running for governor. They have, uh, a show, I guess, Rizzoli's like wife or girlfriend, and his twin brother and this woman running for governor. So they're streaming, you know, all the time. And uh, it's kind of like, uh, um, you know, the Daily Show, God forbid, or, or, you know, something like that. But she's actually avowed herself to the process and running for governor as an independent. And I doubt she's going to get 
uh, that many votes. But uh, you, you know, everyone's saying anti-Semitism is increasing. And, uh, you know, so they were pretty harsh on me. And, uh, you know, just like, you're a liar, you're a deceiver. And, like, ironically, Jim was the most, uh, you know, kind. And he seemed kind of, like, possessed. Like, he, he honestly, I, I, in fact, I called him today. I spoke to him. He posted another video about our call. I spoke to him for, like, half an hour. Um, like, he, you know, he gave me his home number. And, I mean, he's a 70-year-old man. And just for, like, half an hour, he was trying to convince me, um, you know, that the gas chambers are impossible and, like, burning bodies and, and uh, you know, so it was, it was kind of, uh, you know, surreal. I, mean, I, I don't even know what to to uh, say about it. Okay, well, that's, that's a good uh, segue for my title topic of this evening, a terrific article I just read in Wired magazine, The High Cost of Living Your Life Online. Constantly posting content on social media can erode your privacy and your sense of self. And so when I think back to the people that I've had on this show with, and try to think honestly what, what's in their best interests, I think most of the people who've been on this show would, would benefit from less online exposure. A, a tiny number would, would benefit from, from more. But particularly with regard to distant politics, I see most people who expose their distant views online it's, it seems fairly self-destructive. Uh, getting back to Diana Plus and that crowd, they sound like a bunch of marginalized losers, or were they successful people in real life? No, they seem uh, mid-level. You know, I mean, I mean Rizzoli's a 70-year-old man. Um, you know, they look like they had professions, and he seems like he's been doing this for decades. Um, like, he was on the ADL list, uh, like, you know, going back decades ago. Uh, in terms of, like the revisionism before uh, YouTube and all this stuff even got started, Diana Ploss was a normal MAGA Trump woman who you know went down the uh, you know the rabbit hole of uh, QAnon to running for governor largely as a counter Semite and as a video she lost her job. I'm not sure if she was some sort of newscaster or radio uh, show for making fun of an immigrant or like publicly telling immigrants, God forbid, they should go home like that. But it was say she was a normal MAGA Republican, lost her job for anti-immigration sentiment, and then went down the rabbit hole and is, uh, you know, like a modern, I mean, Patrick Little, I guess, went off the scene, but uh, you, you know, like the main basis of their show seems to be uh, counter-Semitism. I mean, when, when I first started streaming with you, you were back in YouTube. YouTube was the place for dissidents. You know, like Ralph Retort was the most popular show on YouTube most nights. Uh, you know, he was going for hours and there'd be like three, four thousand people uh, watching. Um, you know, like Worski uh, was one of the most popular live YouTube show based in Alaska. And more people have got into YouTube in the last uh, few years and they've kicked off. Uh, the, the dissidents. So, I, so I'd say, you know, there's the level of, okay, like I'm a geek and I just uh, want, I'm a technology guy and I got into streaming and I wanted to promote Hasidic Judaism. So I'm using the technology and, you know, I'm even, I'm not using my legal name. I'm a David. I mean, people, people could easily find out who I am. I'm not hiding it, but uh, you decide to just go with uh, Duvid. And then like when Brundle was streaming, start having guests 
and we had like you know people are using the real name for activism so the guy like Rizzoli I don't know his profession but he's probably like a middle class guy he likes to read books and for whatever reason he's dedicated his life to this this is what he does he's been doing it for decades like E. Michael Jones or something like that so if you're just a new dissident and you want to speak to people all of a sudden you're speaking to like big names in dissident circles even like you know like Richard Spencer you know like uh, you know Duvid even to he was on streams together with uh, Richard Spencer, the ADL hit list. I've spoken to you know, over half of the people on uh, the ADL hit list. And I mentioned risk-reward, that there's a lot more risk in these E-circles than reward. One reason is because you have a lot of the people that have been marginalized from society. So if you're saying, like, no, I mean, these guys on the fourth, they're not necessarily severely marginalized losers. They're middle-class people. They like to read. They were engaged in politics and became more more dissident. Um, but uh, you know, certainly the, the dissidents are way more likely to be on the platforms. People who have normal good things going for them, family life, reasonable communication, they're not on these venues. Um, and so there's much more reward there's much less reward than risk. There's still reward. You could meet good people. Um, you know, I was mentioning uh, this video that I'd made like three years ago, first week in review, where I, I was hoping to pivot, you know, like like Babs and the Luke Ford uh, overspill fan club to meeting people IRL. At this point, I've never met anyone IRL from streaming. And it's been much more headache. I get constantly trolled. Um, you know, like uh, your know, boss requested to speak to me. You know, like, God forbid, most of the requests I get for people wanting to speak to me are counter-Semites. And in fact, I get regular requests, uh, God forbid, from counter-Semites who want to speak to me. I don't really get any requests from anybody else. You know, T-Jump occasionally, like, internet personality will want to talk seriously about, like, theology. Uh, Jennifer was on Modern Day Debate talking about ghosts, uh, you know, which got thousands of views. So, I mean, like, I think I've a little established as e-personality where maybe once in a while I'll get, I mean, call like a mainstream interview, but someone who's actually interested in uh, a serious conversation. But it's vast majority uh, dissidents who dominate the platform. And I would say it's near impossible to uh, sift through the dissidents. You might, like, I'm not sure you've been following Andrew Tate. And he's like, well, why do you stream? He streams to meet people. So, you know, it could be you could meet good people, but you're going to meet 10 dissidents, 10 troubled relations for every one good relation. And, you know, there could be a risk-reward calculation. Like, okay, I met Jennifer, I met Luke, I met, I made some friends uh, for every, like, 10 trolls that I deal with. With this headline, the high cost of, of living your life online, you have partly lived your life online the last four years. Would you agree that there's a high cost? Well, I mean, psychologically, there's not, I mean, financial cost. Okay, like I spent $2,500 on the MacBook I'm using. You know, you bought me my microphone and camera, a few hundred dollars. But, uh, you know, I, I, part of the reason I bought the, the iPhone, the, you know, the latest iPhone was because of streaming. But, uh, no, my cost was relatively minimal. And I'm a tech guy. I might have bought this tech stuff even if I uh, wasn't streaming 
So, I mean, financially, the cost wasn't that high, but, you know, certainly if you do want to stream, you do have to invest a good few hundred or even a few thousand dollars into decent computer equipment. Uh, I, mean, I also have high-speed internet. You know, I think I pay like $120 a month for my high-speed internet. Um, you know, I might do that even if I wasn't streaming, but streaming is part of the reason I have the most expensive uh, high-speed internet that the local uh, you know, cable company offers. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, socially, I've probably distanced and lost some of my friends, even like in synagogue, you're like, oh, why are you talking to these guys? Like, you know, they're very skeptical of talking to uh, putting yourself out there. That's probably cost me some of my mainstream. I play a lot more chess. Like since COVID-19, I play like 20 hours of chess a week. Uh, for years, I didn't play chess at all. Like I stopped playing, even when I was coaching chess, like I just uh, volunteered as a chess coach on Fridays and I didn't play chess at all. But, uh, you know, now I spend tens of hours every week, uh, you know, playing chess. And, uh, you know, so psychologically it's isolated me from people IRL and I might focus on uh, more negative issues uh, that uh, you, because I'm, uh, you're worried about politics. Like, like I think my father or average people, they don't really follow politics that much. Um, you know, maybe Jews do. My mother uh, really follows politics, but uh, you know, it's caused me to spend much more time reading through articles and uh, you know, trying to understand what's going on in the world. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's all, all negative, but yeah, definitely taxing and psychologically taking a toll. And I think you're touching on something important there referring to the negativity, there is a, a strong tendency when you get online and you start talking to go to morbid, dark places that you wouldn't do if in most face-to-face -face interactions. Well, you could, I live in Detroit and saying like, yeah, I deal with uh, dissidents and people. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I ever dealt IRL with like, historical revisionism related to the Holocaust, but I'm sure there's a lot of people, you know, especially like African-Americans that are skeptical, uh, you know, certainly like counter-Semitism or conspiracy theory, uh, you know, walking as a openly Orthodox uh, Jew. I dealt with that all the time. You know, people ask me about like Rothschilds and banking or, or conspiracy stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, like a time drain that I wouldn't have, spent much time talking with those people. It just would have been like in public, someone would have came up and, uh, you know, like I, I might, you know, might give them a few minutes and until I could end the conversation. Um, you know, like I said, there's probably people I'm around all the time that believe this stuff that I wouldn't talk with them. Uh, but yeah, on the internet, I think I spend more time talking with my detractors than my friends. And even like on week in review, even on my own channel, like my own chat, uh, is it's probably like 50 50 against me i mean like god forbid like when i stream on my own channel and on you know week in review with jennifer I, I think it's probably like basically 50 50 uh for and against me and when i was on like even even your your channel charles moskowitz uh t jump some of these other shows like it's more than 50 50 against me um, you, you know, even I've been streaming with you for a few years, Charles, a few years, your chat's still pretty harsh on me. Um, when I was on T jump, 
uh, it got thousands of views and the comments i mean he was arguing atheism but the, you know the comments were almost all bad you know, like hundreds of comments thousands of people watched and everyone was basically like this guy's a moron this guy's an idiot this guy's an embarrassment and uh you know your chat like god forbid <laughs> like uh, has elements of that but i don't know because i felt like probably that's what people think everywhere i go it's just very unlikely people would say that to you face to face so it's the danger of the e-personality is that you know, probably it's like in my in synagogue half the people probably think uh think that but they just wouldn't say it but behind the anonymity of an of a you know name in the chat uh, that's what they want to say and that's what they say but what about your own proclivities to go to a dark place or discuss something you know particularly painful or difficult i think it's a lot easier to do it online than in face to face yeah, I was always, I mean, probably like you, I was always a dark person and made it difficult, my social relations, that, like, I always, uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, God forbid, like, you know, World War II or anti-Semitism or violence or the dark things of society, and it limited my social reaction, so the internet was, uh, you know, made it more possible to talk about these darker things that I usually talk about them I and that's probably how we found each other and uh you know so i had friends or people that had similar interest and the you know the friends that i had that we talked many many hours um you were probably darker type people that enjoyed talking about the darker side of human nature um i'm, I'm taking from what you've said about yourself that that probably goes for you also uh, yeah, probably. I'd have to. Yeah, I mean, definitely. But uh, let me get back to this Wired article. The high cost of living your life online, constantly posting content on social media can erode your privacy and your sense of self. So have you got into cycles where you felt like you were posting too much on, on social media or you're going on too many live streams and you had to dial it back or maybe you completely quit for, for a month. Did you notice what effects a completely quitting live streaming had on your mental health? Well, I think this article is more generic and not referring to live streamers. I mean, we're kind of like already e-personalities. We have our own channel and our own media, um, you know, if invested and, you know, monetized appeared on programs you know if i'm thinking back to when i use facebook more i used to be more likely to get into facebook debates or argue about uh politics i, th I think after 2016 i had uh i unfriended i used to have a lot of friends on facebook and 2016 i unfriended like 2000 of my friends like i went down to just a few hundred friends and it was mostly related to the the trump clinton um election or was that yeah 2016 and that's when i started streaming and so i think the article's talking more about just generic social media like facebook instagram posting pictures and since then like i hardly post anything i was promoting at the downtown synagogue I used to promote, you know, like take a picture, post Shabbat Shalom. Um, I would have definitely posted on my Facebook, like Lishna Tova. I would post random things all the time. Now I I hardly post anything. I just post Week in Review. 
occasionally post like uh, teaching company courses I'm taking. So I, I stopped already 2016 and completely limited my Facebook to uh, very little. And uh, but then got into streaming and then I'm streaming under Duvid. And even that, basically, I just like link that I'm streaming. So I'm, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the article is just referring to not like right, streaming. Right, but I, I asked you a question. So forget about the article. I asked you a question. Did you did you ever like quit uh, posting or, or live streaming for a month? and see how that affected your your happiness level did you feel that you were too much online and consciously try to dial it back i think i was more like cold turkey like after 2016 i uh i basically you know i was pretty active on facebook i had thousands of friends i would be you know conversations and after the clinton trump election i basically just uh stopped interacting with people on Facebook in totality. So I never did like a month break and then and then uh, came back to it. So you haven't seen any correlation between how much time you spent posting or, or streaming online and your happiness level? I'm pretty based in my... I'm not a happy person and my levels don't really go up up and down much. Like I have a base level of on the depressed side and, and it doesn't go up and down much. So, I mean, when I was active on Facebook, that was with people I actually knew or you're mostly Jews. Uh, some of them I didn't know, but like, you know, that I'd reached out to uh, across the nation and I was actively, I was trying to promote Judy. Like when we first talked, I was trying to promote Judaism. Um and I think maybe I was still active on Facebook when we first met, but uh, but uh, maybe I, I had already uh, stopped. And uh, but but that was different. That was people I actually knew. So I stopped, uh, you know, interacting with people I even knew. Right. So my question uh, for for a third time: Did you you didn't did you notice any correlation between the amount of time you spent? participating online in social media and your happiness level. And I think well, what you're saying is that you haven't noticed any correlation. Well, I'm kind of a dark person on a depressed level and doesn't go up and down like that. I, I don't think in the last 20 years that I've really had phases of up and down. I have a base level on the depressed side, uh, you know, really for decades, maybe my whole life doesn't go up and down. Okay. Back to this Wired Magazine article. To be online is to be constantly exposed I felt that occasionally, but but not generally speaking. Uh, do you feel more exposed because of all the live streaming you've done over the last four years? No, cause I'm kind of a existentialist. Like, you know, what does it matter, anyways? You know, does it if uh, um, you know if people if people knew everything about me? I don't think I'd really care if people knew my deepest darkest secrets. I'm careful about like. Uh, identity theft or uh my personal safety but uh you know, as I said like I've had kind of uh this base level of depression my whole life and uh that's probably semi abnormal I'm not sure I mean do you have ups and downs like that or you also kind of like me have a a base level somewhat on the depressive side No I have a base level on the happiness side I'm a, I'm a pretty happy guy 95% of the time and then 
uh maybe one to five percent of the time i'm sad guy yeah maybe i was rejected you know when i was young and i joined like hasidic judaism got very into it and uh you know so just never you never really had a, a happy side to me like i got into ultra orthodox judaism at 18 years old and have stuck in with it and uh you i've never been an upbeat happy person and uh, what about the marijuana well i've stopped uh, using it now you know i i briefly thought maybe over sukkah i would uh buy a little but i don't think i'm i'm going to that's the last time i um last time i smoked uh, yeah i smoked last sukkah i bought uh, a few grams and then maybe on Passover, my tenant had a tiny bit, like half a gram that was left in the house that I smoked over Passover. But I, I don't think I'm even going to buy any for uh, the holiday. That was kind of like antidepressant that uh, I don't think I need. You know, I think I'm stable. I'm not I'm not dangerous. I'm not dangerous to others or myself. And I have a stable baseline, um, you know, like as a kind of unhappy person, God forbid. Okay, let me go back to this Wired Magazine article. To be online is to be constantly exposed. While it may seem normal, it's a level of exposure we've never dealt with before as human beings. We're posting on Twitter and people we've never met are responding with their thoughts and criticisms. People are looking at your latest Instagram selfie. They're literally swiping on your face. Messages are piling up. You can sometimes feel like the whole world has its eyes on you. Well, this is this is something I've I virtually never experienced. I, I've never felt like the whole world has its eyes on me. Being observed by so many people appears to have significant psychological effects. Yeah, I, I'm not sure being observed has had profound psychological effects on me. I, I don't think I, I certainly didn't notice a decrease in happiness once I started blogging or once I started live streaming. I mean, the last last six years have been about the happiest years of my life. And so those coincide with with uh, live streaming. And of course, there are many good things about connecting with other people, but it also has numerous downsides. So for, as with, with everything, it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just that there are upsides and downsides. So definitely some people do not need to become more exposed. Other people would benefit from being more public. But I, I think it primarily depends on if you live in reality so that you have a, a realistic assessment of yourself and your own abilities. And second, if you have some kind of overarching public purpose to what you're doing, if you are devoted to a cause, if you are trying to push some, some positive message in the world, then it's a lot easier to be exposed because you, you're doing it for, for a good reason, right? So I do a lot of things online, and I have overarching purpose to what I'm doing. I, I primarily go online to, to learn. I go online to make money. I go online to laugh. I, I go online to stay in touch with family and friends. And that another big reason I do these live streams is that I experience the benefits of thinking socially. Right. So when I go off on my own with my intellectual fixations, they're frequently divorced from reality. Uh, we're just evolutionarily adapted to being extraordinarily good at seeing through other people's attempts to manipulate us, but we tend to be terrible at evaluating our own thinking, right? We tend to have excessive self-confidence many times, but and that's adaptive because it kind of holds feelings of insignificance at bay. But when an idea grabs me, I want to talk about it. The more smart people I talk to, the more wisdom I get. So I think better. I think more clearly when I think socially. 
And because I have an ego and I don't want to get unnecessarily humiliated online or in real life, I try to think things through reasonably and responsibly, think out loud in a social manner, listen carefully to the, the feedback I get. So I like to explore in particular dissident ideas that the mainstream media just reflexively dismisses and demeans. So this is my niche. I like to discuss the forbidden without being reflexively pro or con. So I don't have any sacred cows, though I do have interests in addition to my values, and my interests and my values will shape my choices online and off. So my audience seems to be about 80% dissidents. I think they appreciate that I neither loathe dissident ideas nor embrace them. So I'm not a pundit. I'm not a syndicated radio host who makes his living telling people what they want to hear. I'm not a populist. I don't believe that wisdom resides with the people. I'm not an elitist. I don't believe that wisdom resides with the elite. I don't believe any group or class is specially chosen or consistently wise or good. I believe both sides of the political spectrum are normal, natural reflections of evolutionary adaptations. So in some situations, the right-wing approach is more adaptive. In other situations, a more radical approach is more adaptive. And so I try to think... Before I say something publicly, I try to say things in a way that the largest possible number of people can hear me without getting unnecessarily hurt or, or triggered. So I want to keep like at least 50% of the audience on my side. Is there anything I was just sharing that you'd like to comment on, David? Yeah, I agree with most of what you're saying. I, I, I think you're more performative. I'm, obviously, you're there in Hollywood and have a you know, performative background. Um, you know, so I don't have any of that or, or interest. Uh, but uh, besides for that part, I agree with basically everything you said. I was always very sober about social media. You know, I'm a tech guy. I took, uh, you know, I started university computer programming, uh, database management. I understood the social media, their, you know, freemium models or, you know, the value proposition of how they're doing it or, or the, you know, to benefit from it. So, you know, like you said, like I use Facebook, uh, mostly to keep up with uh, friends and family, people I actually know, I IRL, but uh, I found that has, you know, darkened. And even that, like, I, I don't even know if I'd feel safe posting pictures with my uh, family. I think the world's became a pretty unfriendly place for the last uh, few years. Uh, but, uh, you know, without the performative aspects, like you trying to develop an audience and uh, build a show, I just wanted to find people that were interested in, conversations and like the purpose i always had a purpose even when i started the uh, all of my social media uh was to promote judaism that was my purpose i created my youtube page to promote uh you know synagogue judaism chabad i used my facebook page uh when i you know, had thousands of friends and was active on it uh mostly to promote judaism jewish causes fundraising uh, you know jewish events and uh, when I stopped doing that, I'm not really a self-promotional type person. I, I, you're just, you're like you minus the performative aspect. I just like to find people who are interested in having conversations about the things that interest me. And uh, and I also like to know what's going on out there. And uh, you just speak to people, the type conversations, uh, you know, besides the ones I enjoy, like consciousness and uh, you know, Judaism, uh, uh, esoteric stuff, spiritual stuff. Uh, but, you know, the the type of conversations that I feel that uh, people want to have uh, but uh, don't have. I, mean, I don't know if you agree with my aspect that you're somewhat a performative person and, uh, you know, that you could have what I'm doing and more because, you know, I'm just trying to 
meet some social needs and intellectual needs uh, without that performative aspect where you know you're trying to promote a show and yourself as a character. I would uh, have to think about that. So I'll maybe get back to you on that. I'm going to move on with the show for today. So thanks for coming by, David. Yeah, I appreciate Yom Kippur tomorrow. You know, it's the big one. So, uh, you know, the Jewish holiday season. So, uh, you know, certainly if you want to talk about, uh, you know, Judaism tomorrow, you know, fast starts and uh, you have an easy fast and uh, you should be sealed in the book of life for peace and prosperity. And, uh, you know, uh, wish you the best. Okay, thanks, David. Good to talk to you. So let me get back to this Wired Magazine article. Yeah, I I didn't live stream for 10 days. Uh, Most of that time I was feeling sick. Uh, not severely, just a little under the weather. So I didn't get to really enjoy Rosh Hashanah. I didn't go to any social occasions or or meals with friends. I had invites for every meal, but unfortunately I I didn't go because I was feeling under the weather. Also, I also took off about five days from from live streaming when I wasn't sick just because I don't want to do this reflexively. I don't want to do this without reflection. I I don't want to do this by habit or, or by compulsion I, I want to do this when I have something that I, I really want to talk about and I want to interrupt my patterns of, of live streaming every day so that I can get out of habit and then come back to this as a, as a brand new thing. So I agree with this article. To be online is to be constantly exposed, but not necessarily. It depends how you conduct yourself online. So I, I try to have a positive overarching purpose to what I'm doing online and what I'm doing offline. And so that just makes life so much simpler. I mean, whether I'm working or playing or walking down the street and picking up trash, whether I'm volunteering, I try to have positive, you know, overarching purpose so that if a video camera was trained on me without me knowing it and then was played on the New York Times website, I wouldn't feel ashamed. That's my that's my moral barometer. How would this look like if it was posted on the front page of the, the New York Times? So if I'm feeling bad about myself, I like to get out onto the streets and start you know, picking up trash or thinking about how I can be useful to someone else or just cleaning, cleaning my place. <laughs> those, those are ways that uh, I find myself pepping up. And I don't go online just to expose myself. I go online because there are things that I want to talk about, articles I, I want to share, books that I've just read ideas that I think are important. So back to Wyatt. Studies have found high levels of social media use are connected with an increased risk of symptoms of anxiety and depression. I think what's really going on here is that people who are already predisposed to high levels of anxiety and depression are handicapped at normal human interactions. Therefore, they spend a lot more time online, which then exacerbates their tendencies towards anxiety and depression. Luke's 10 days of YouTube fasting, <laughs> e-fasting. I'll add it to my no fap. <laughs> yeah, think of the Jewish holidays as spiritual booster shots. <laughs> Yom Kippur is tomorrow, so will it mean another week off for Luke Ford? No, I don't think it'll be a week off, but I don't want to stream compulsively. I want to stream deliberately. I, I want to stream with kavanah. That means intention in Hebrew. So there's substantial evidence connecting people's mental health and their online habits. Yeah, but I think a lot of it is people's mental health 
creates their online habits. Also, your online habits are going to have an effect on your, your mental health. So I try to live a life by the maxim, everybody knows everything. I know that's not 100% true. I just find that incredibly sobering and wise perspective to take on life. So when I turn off my camera, there's, there's nothing that goes on that would shock you. You know, I'm not looking at porn. I'm not eating, you know, tray food, non-kosher food. I'm, you know, not doing drugs and alcohol. I'm not uh, wasting my time playing video games. I'm generally spending my spare time reading books, listening to podcasts, doing exercises, uh, watching a few NFL games, watching watching a movie while I'm, you know, grinding out the miles on my exercise bike or hanging out with friends, participating in the Jewish community, going to lectures, book clubs, and going to the, the beach. I mean, that's that's my life. We need a 24-7 life care. Yeah, but it's very tiring to to be on camera. It does change you. It it does affect you and it does take a toll. Now, a little bit I find is a positive stimulus. So sometimes when I'm just tired and apathetic, I will start live streaming because I know the the dangers of making a total a-hole of myself, right? The dangers are so real and so visceral that it, it raises me out of my lethargy, out of my stupor, out of my fatigue, and wonderfully concentrates the mind. There's something about the possibility of completely destroying your life by saying the wrong thing that just wonderfully concentrates your mind. The, the, the idea that some kind of virtual guillotine can come down and just chop off your, your social life and your, your friendships and your connections and your happiness if you, you say the wrong thing wonderfully, wonderfully concentrates the mind. Okay, back to Wyatt here. What we're finding is people are spending way more time on screen than previously reported or that they actually believed it's becoming an epidemic. So one thing that's really helped me is a trick I learned from 12-step programs such as Dead is Anonymous, uh, Under Owners Anonymous, and the various food programs where they recommend you write down everything you do. So you, you track how you keep your time. You track every penny you spend, you track every penny you earn, you track every you know, little bit of food that you put into your system, you track uh, how much exercise you get. And so I, I found that an incredibly spiritual experience, like it really plunged me into reality. And I found that there were times when I did not spend money because I didn't want to write it down. So, so tracking, if you track anything, you get more of it. If you track your time, you get more time. If you track your money, you get more money. If you track your earning, you get more earning. If you track what you're eating, you, you get better results with your, with your health. So, yeah, you can spiral out of control online. Right? Particularly if you're receiving, receiving dozens of notifications and you feel like you can't escape your online life. I don't feel that. Like, I was offline from live streaming and posting for 10 days and I'd never had any sense that I, I couldn't escape my online life. Also, I have all my notifications off. I have my phone on do not disturb almost all the time. So I virtually never have any sense that I can't escape my online life. 40s etiquette put an end to the walkabout streams. Yeah, I just, I couldn't get over 
my sense that this was antisocial. You know, people don't like it when other people are walking down the street live streaming. Like, other people, you know, don't ask to be on somebody's live stream. So, yeah, if I could do it early in the morning or if I can do it in like a particularly crowded place where there are no expectations of privacy. So this this growing ethical realization hasn't completely put an end to my stroll streams. I may, you know, do them starting t tomorrow morning at uh, 5 a.m., but it has definitely kind of dampened them. Right, back to Wired Magazine. Even when you're not on the screens, the screens are in your head. This is a Larry Rosen, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at California State University, Dominguez Hills. It's like the Harvard of Dominguez Hills. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a truism. Even when you're not on the screens, the screens are in your head. Even when I'm not playing cricket, cricket's in my head. Like, I haven't looked at porn for a while, but uh, even when you're not looking at porn, you know, porn can still be in your head. Even when I'm not looking into the face of my rabbi, you know, my rabbi's face can still come to, to my mind. All right, so it's not just online screens that stay as some kind of fixation in your head. And just speaking experientially, just, just the power of human connection, once I experienced the warmth of my Rebbe smile, no other life was possible for me. Right? Sometimes you have such a life-transforming connection, such a life-transforming experience, once you, you just feel your neshama, your soul, so moved by, by uh, adopting a Rebbe, uh, adopting a, a spiritual community, and all, all other possibilities for how to lead a life just... Uh, just wander away. Art Bell says, how does Luke find such unusual articles? Is that from some curation site? No, I just read a ton, bro. So I don't like, this is going to be more information than you want. I don't like to, I don't like to sit upon the throne without my iPhone in my head. So I subscribe to Apple News Plus. So I found this Wired article on Apple News Plus. So uh, every morning, I probably start with Apple News Plus on the phone. And then when I'm eating breakfast, I usually start with the Drudge Report, then the LA Times, New York Times, Steve Saylor, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Athletic, and ESPN. I'm so happy because I just found my friends. They're in my head. The beauty of live streaming is catching unusual things on camera. I hear the sound of 40s didgeridoo 24-7. I recently quit watching Luke Ford for 10 days. Does that count? I always hear that Spencer rant, don't you, 40? <laughs> it's true. 40's visage is burned into my eyeballs. 4 a.m. sunrise stroll streams would have worked till a 10-person jumped Luke. <laughs> Extreme exercise cures all depression. I wonder about that, but I think there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom there, right? So even when you're not on screen, the screens are in your head. Well, if you're passionate about the Dallas Cowboys, even when you're not watching the Dallas Cowboys, the, the Dallas Cowboys are going to be in your head. I mean, if you're passionate about politics and Donald Trump, even when you're not actively listening to Donald Trump or reading the news, that's still going to be in your head. 
if you like certain songs, they're going to be in your head. But more importantly, my friends are with me, right? My friends are with me when I'm live streaming, when I'm walking by the way, when I'm sitting at the table, when I'm lying down at night. I, I feel the presence of my friends and there's one friend I want to talk about topic X, another friend I want to talk about topic Y, and then some other friends do I want to bring them together. So my my human connections, my, my most important people in my life, they're with me even when they're not in the same room, same house or the same same block. So anything you do is going to affect you. So even when you're not on the screen, the screens are in your head. Well, you can tune in to as forgive for good author. Who's who's that guy? Forgive good. Ah, I'm blanking on him. But uh, he talks about how we have these TV channels in our mind, and we can choose to tune into a channel of love or gratitude or beauty, or we can choose to tune into resentment. So we have some ability to choose the channels that play in our head. One value of privacy is it gives us space to operate without judgment. Well, live streaming 90 minutes a day, five days a week does not take away from my privacy. Sure, I, I may lose a little bit, but not a lot. Does my foot ever fall asleep while reading on the throne? Never. I expected the white article to be on Drudge. No. I don't get my articles primarily from Drudge. It's relatively rare that I talk about an article linked on Drudge, even though I, I check Drudge every day. But I probably get more of my articles from Apple News Plus. So I look at The Atlantic every day. I look at New York Magazine and The New Yorker several times a week and, and just scroll through Apple News Plus where there are about 60 different newspapers and over 100 periodicals. And so you're just constantly getting bombarded with, with good stuff. I, I find that Apple News Plus curation is uh, pretty down the center. It's not particularly left wing. Hey, have you guys seen this new British TV show called This Is England? I think it, it played in England as this scepted aisle. It's about Boris Johnson and England's experience with COVID basically from December of 2019 until approximately May of, of 2020. I, I quite liked it. So very compelling picture of Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, uh, many of the, the major characters in the early COVID crisis and how the Tory government in England switched from initially taking an approach of herd immunity and then they focus grouped everything. Like Dominic Cummings very much into fo focus groups. So he had uh, the number one science advisor was speaking on the radio about uh, they were looking to take the approach of, of herd immunity. So what percentage of the population would that mean? 60% or 80%. So if you got 80% of the population have had COVID, you know, that means about in England, that means about 400,000 deaths. And so people found it callous that this leading government scientist was talking about herd immunity, knowing that it would mean you know 400,000 deaths. So they stopped using the term herd immunity. And then as the, the case rate and the hospitalization rate kept going up and up and up, they realized it was going to put great strain on the National Health Service. So NHS, they found, was a very good way to present uh, slowing the spread of COVID. So apparently, large majority of Britons adore their National Health Service. So they pitched the lockdown, according to this six-part TV series, 
called uh, This England, they pitched the lockdown as a way to relieve strain on the National Health Service. And so they were very into their slogans. So they, they ran an election on get Brexit done. And then they came up with some equally pithy slogans for COVID, but they largely revolved around protecting the National Health Service. And it shows, you know, everyone going onto the streets at 7 p.m. and clapping for the for the National Health Service. I, I just can't picture people in America doing that for Kaiser. It's like, oh, everybody, let's go out and clap for our HMO. Let's go out and clap for our Medicare. Let's uh, go out and clap for our Blue Cross. Apple News might be Luke's duration. It's a mild thinkers we read. Read drudge while waiting for the sludge. I think 40 still looks at the world through the lens of years spent in the porn industry and reading the New York Times. If you have time to read on the throne, you're not eating properly, says Elliot. Oh my God. I can't even defecate properly. What a failure I am. And Elliot, I, I need to tell you this man to man, bro. Just just because it wasn't violent doesn't mean you weren't raped. So I am here for you, bro. This is a, a safe space for you to explore that, that feeling of violation at the hands of Uncle Wally. Let's go out and clap for our, <laughs> for our health insurance. Let's... Let's clap for the clap. All right. At one value of privacy, it gives us space to operate without judgment. Yeah, so I have 23 <coughs> hours to uh, be, be private. Uh, Elliot, this is a safe space for you, bro. Thanks, bro. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. Blessings, man. <laughs> blessings. I, I'm here to help you process the, the trauma that you've been through. I've been through no trauma. I've, I've experienced yeah, I, you're still in denial. That's just the first time. No, I, Rick, I'm, I'm coming up. I'm coming up the uh, roses these days. Uh, hey, I discovered. Uh, I discovered Gordon Ramsay. You know Gordon yes, Ramsay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I've been watching nothing but Gordon Ramsay for the past week. <laughs> it's been like just first class entertainment. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, but I mean, uh, it's anyway. healthy. He's a, like a financial advisor, dude, right? No, no, no. He's a chef. He's this British oh. chef with oh. a with a with a volcanic temper and a hair trigger. You know? <laughs> that sounds a lot like you, bro. <laughs> I found my soulmate. It's Gordon Ramsay. So yeah, like uh, I've been. Uh, I told you, you know, last time we spoke, I just purchased a uh, Dutch oven. You know. Yes. And I've been cooking with it, you know, and I just, just, oh, the food has been so good. And I've been sleeping so well. I just, I've just taken my life up a notch with this one simple purchase. Like, and, um, and then I, you know, coincidentally, so I started looking for like, um, uh, cooking videos, you know, it's like, I think if I was looking for them, they started appearing in my feed, like yeah. by my magic, you know, yeah. by this algorithmic magic. And um, so I, I happened onto Gordon Ramsay, and it's just been this uh, this spiral of of education and life enhancement with this, such a simple simple uh, tool, this device. The best things in life are either free or or, or very inexpensively. 
so have you been cooking anything? I have. I've been cooking every day. You know, I've always been cooking since COVID, but now I've, you know, I've really started to like watch videos and improve my technique and um, um, just just learn little tips and tricks and applying those. So they're so easy to apply, you know, and there's just infinite amounts of knowledge, just infinite amounts of cooking videos online. You know, they're either basically YouTube is either JQ or cooking videos, you know, <laughs> there's, there's very little else on YouTube. So you know, I've mined the uh, well of JQ for the past five years. So now, <laughs> now I'm up in my cooking game, Luke, and I, I couldn't be happier. I've uh, I just bought these tactical gloves. Do you have any tactical gloves? Uh, I have some rubber gloves which I just bought. Uh, are they the same? Or are they different? No, tactical gloves that like protection for for your for your knuckles. I mean, like when you throw a punch. I mean, you really throw a punch with these tactical gloves i mean i'm just walking down the street just ready to mix it up bro i mean i'm not i'm are not they, cooking i'm a... i'm just ready to fight really really yeah are they brad like brass knuckles or are they something else? yeah yeah but legal ones the legal brass yeah knuckles. you can you can buy them on amazon <laughs> oh god i mean so much so... protection for your for your you know for the sensitive parts of your hand and then when you punch someone you just really lay them out <laughs> Yeah, I have collected so much money. Yeah, I, I a b tested this. All right, I went collecting money without my gloves, and then I yeah. added the gloves, the sunglasses, and the cricket bat. Three mm -hmm. times as much money I've been able to collect. Oh, Bezos strikes again. You know, I used to, I used to, I used to fear Bezos. So, why did you buy these gloves, Luke? This is uh, intriguing to me. I mean, has the street tension gotten? Uh, have you felt the need to defend yourself lately? It just really, the... yeah, it just really sends my testosterone levels higher. I just feel yeah. like a completely different man. Like normally yeah. I would do anything to avoid a, a physical fight, but yeah. I just have to strap these on and I go looking for a fight. <laughs> so uh, I guess I'll have to go to the lady, but what is the, fee now? And okay. it really intimidates people. They see so me what walking do they look the like? What what do they look? They look like boxing gloves or something, or what are you talking? Um, about? No, they're 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 black, and yeah. so protection. You know, they're they're ribbed. You know, they're like mm -hmm. a ribbed condom, but black, <laughs> and, and you know, very intimidating. Okay. I mean, so I, you wouldn't believe the intimidation level that that when I walk down the street, I just wear all black, and my mm -hmm. sunglasses, my yeah. black kippah, and these tactical gloves. And I'm just yeah. itching for a fight. And you just go down to the train station and skid row, and you're just yeah. looking for a... Yeah. Just, just <sighs> waiting for it, man. Somehow I'm not believing you, Luke. Somehow. I just can't believe how much tactical gloves affect, you know, affect me. Just, I put on these gloves, I become a different man. Uh, well... But enough about uh, me. Let's get back to cooking. Uh, oh, I don't know, Luke. I mean, well... Okay, put it this way, Luke. Like... You know, I would have, you know, occasionally I have these bouts of insomnia and so forth. And and now I'm just, I'm basically, I'm eating one solid meal a day, uh, but a real proper meal and uh, slow cooked, you know, and salad, all the, all the sort of good, wholesome things you were told by your mother as a child, you know, vegetables and things, just a big, well-balanced meal, you know, and then. I like 
I just fall asleep like a baby and I just completely just go deep, deep into like the nether worlds of sleep and unconsciousness. And I wake up like not even knowing where I am. It's like, this is, this is the simple things, Luke. They, it's so nice to wake up thoroughly refreshed, Luke. And I, I really trace it all to this, 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 um, this sort of commitment to cooking that I've, I've done and found. And do you have a cookie? A cookie. Yeah. Do you give yourself a cookie every night because you've been good? Uh, <laughs> no, but I, 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 I don't. I don't do keto. I don't do special diets. I don't do time restriction. I just say I'm going to make a quality meal and eat it. You know, as simple as that. And I don't count my macros. I don't count my calories. I don't do anything. I just say I'm going to have a broad, nutritious meal. And it's just, it's like, it's like living in the country in a log cabin like Abe Lincoln. Yeah, you're a log cabin Republican. <laughs> well played, dude. Like honest Abe. I mean, you're well, out there handing out cookies and snacks. Yeah. Well, I, I eat these, I have these chocolate bars, these like gourmet chocolate bars that I get at this discount store. These chocolate bars are like eight, nine bucks at Whole Foods, but I can get them for three bucks at this uh, discount store. So the exact same brand and everything. So I've got, I've got my sort of whole food intake down to the science. So um, that's what's been going on, Luke. You asked, I told you. Have you been bringing like baked goods to people to like your gay swimming club? Okay, so the swimming club, I told you about the drowning accident, right? Yeah. Okay, so one of the members of this swim club is um, is a billionaire or married to a billionaire, right? And it's very funny, like, how, like, I've noticed socially how people basically circle around and defer to her. Like she's been basically, she's sort of implicitly the queen of this whole scene. Yeah. And um, it's very interesting to watch at a social level, like how people sidle up to people when they know that they're extremely wealthy. And uh, it's hard so not it's sort to of do, isn't it? It is hard not to do. It, and like, put it this way. I was, I was invited to an open house that she'd thrown, right? And I debated, I really wanted to go because it seemed like, like a primo networking opportunity. But at the same time, it seemed like a really, um, you know, kind of ass kissy, cucky thing to do at the same time. Because the only reason I would have gone would have been to sort of like get an introduction, you know. And uh, so ultimately I opted out of it, but not without deeply contemplating it first. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm impressed because like a lot of guys would not accept mouth to mouth resuscitation from a homosexual, but you're able to overcome your homophobia because your life was at stake because you got caught, you know, out out to sea, and and now you know three gay guys saved you, and it's really helped you get over that very unfortunate prejudice. 
No, that wasn't me. The the gay guy ended up dying, drowned. Um, but um, uh, but not everyone make in that not everyone in that swimming club is gay. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. In fact, most aren't. It's actually one of the most heterosexual. It's the only heterosexual scene in town. Um, uh, how do we go? I was trying to make. I was making a really keen social uh, observation, and you sort of just just steamrolled it Luke, with your sort of junior high gay joke. That, that's 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 a really good point there, Elliot. <laughs> You know, sometimes I, I you know, I, when I call in, look, I'm bringing my best. I don't call in that often. And when I do, I, I bring energy to the situation. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. Remember your, your, uh, your series on the rising pitch? Yeah, I'm, the... I'm noticing a lot more melody in your voice. Well, I mean, it's like listening okay, to musical theater. Pitch, like, there's musical the theater. Go ahead. Rising pitch is a symptom of the energy level that you're bringing. So if you're bringing a high energy level to a conversation, your pitch will rise. So it's not really the rising of the pitch that's the uh, magnet. It's the energy level behind the rising of the pitch. So, so that's really the key takeaway that, that of those observations that you were bringing out. Hmm. That yeah. makes sense? Yeah, I think that there's something to that. There's... I, I got to say, there's a whole new melodic quality to your voice these days, and I, I attribute it to the to the healthy cooking. And... It's the healthy cooking, Luke. It's the healthy cooking. Better nutrition, better sleep, better and better uh, energy level, higher energy level, and just the better quality of your output in the world. And the more, the better the quality of your output, the better the quality of stuff that you get back. It's like this self reinforcing cycle, Luke. So you're either spiraling up or you're spiraling down, Luke. And the 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 pivotal ingredient, the pivotal factor, is how well your um, uh, the quality of your nutrition. What would you say is your your favorite Broadway musical? <laughs> I've seen Precious Few. Um, I saw what's that Annie Annie Oakley Annie Annie get, Annie, your, get gun. your gun Annie I saw get, Annie get your gun, but not on Broadway. I saw it at some sort of regional theater in in, in New Hampshire when I was a child. Uh, I'm not big on musicals. I I, I um, yeah. So I don't have one. Luke. And have you been <laughs> swimming, or did the the gay guy drowning kind of put you off? Well, uh, yeah, it sort of put me off. I've been meaning to get in because the weather's been so good. I've been in, in, in meaning to get down there. Um, uh, but just going in there in this sort of this post-grief atmosphere that's sort of uh, gr just grown up around this one tragic event, I just didn't really want to participate in. So, but uh, I'm going to go back soon. Um, but also, every time I go swimming, there's like this, 24-hour recovery period so it means i lose an extra day of of productivity and so i've been on this big productivity kick so i've been sort of um uh allocating my energy a bit more judiciously now that i'm getting older Luke. and how about the uh, chaga chaga mushrooms or are you doing shrooms these days psychedelic mushrooms uh i have a shitload of psychedelic mushrooms but i've not 
I, I haven't done them in over a year now. Um, but I've been really wanting to, but I, I, the conditions have to be right. And I've just got so much going on outside of mushrooms that. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, you've been, I you're cooking. I mean, you're productive. Yeah. I'm doing so much really other full life. stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why, why complicate it with, uh, with mushrooms? I, I mean, mean, you're floating in but mushrooms, But I have to say this whole new upswing that I've been on, I think was catalyzed by mushrooms when I did my mushrooms, you know, over like a year ago, this past spring. Um, Mushrooms are great, man. I mean, I don't want to downplay them, but they're like, there are certain times when you're, you're, you're stable enough to risk disruption, right? Mm-hmm. And there's times when you're not. And right now, I don't feel like disrupting my life flow at the moment because I don't feel stuck. I think mushrooms are a good thing to get you through a period when you're feeling stuck or you need, you just need a new insight, but I don't feel as though I need a new insight at the moment, but I, you know, should I, I, I think mushrooms would be a resource that I, I would go for. So you feel like your chi is really moving through all your chakras. My chi is moving like a, like the, like the, like the mighty Nile back and forth nice and easily. Yeah. I'm in a, I'm in a flow state, bro. <laughs> Okay, so Wired Magazine, Elliot, it talks about the high cost of living your life online. Constantly posting on social media can erode your privacy and your sense of self. Have you paid a cost for, for living your life online? <clears throat> um, well, that week that you've been away, you know, I did notice a definite hole in my experience, you know, I must say, not to pressure you or anything, but you were part of a certain ritual that I, I was partaking in and that gap that you'd left empty was felt and noticed. And then it, it probably made me reflect on, well, you know, what am I, shouldn't I be doing something else? I mean, it, it's not like I wasn't doing anything while I was listening to the show, but you know, it was a certain, um, there was a my participation in the show, my engagement in the show. There's a ritualistic quality to it that I more or less had come to expect would be there every every evening at five o'clock. And so when it's not there, it's it's noticed. You know, uh, it reminded me when I was a, when I was a kid. I used to like to watch Johnny Carson, and I would I would like go to sleep early just so I could wake up at eleven thirty and then watch Johnny Carson and David Letterman. And then Johnny Carson would have a rerun on rather than a live show. And these would be really just depressing events for me when there was a rerun, you know? And so um, it's very funny how, you know, certain shows, certain entertainment rituals (coughs) you come to depend on, uh, you kind of depend on and when they're gone, you, uh, you actually feel their absence in a very peculiar way, in a very strong way. So I'm glad you're back, bro. But I'm, uh, you know, I want to keep this interesting for you. You know, I, you know, I don't like this idea of like unpredictable 40, like just popping up here and popping up there, you know, like this five o'clock appointment. I've come it's to depend a, it's on. It's appointment TV. <laughs> it is. It is a certain ritual though. You have to remember it's yeah. a ritual for you. It's, yeah. a metri- it's a ritual for a lot of the audience, you know? And so, um, are you really ready to start messing with the working formula? 
Right. I mean, I'd hate to risk my success. <laughs> what else am I going to do? Am I, I going to listen to Rizzo? <laughs> just, just kick uh-huh. back. <laughs> He's quite listen. the flutist. <laughs> the dulcet tones of Rizzo. Just <laughs> there's not much out there, bro. Well, there's Rizzo and there's Lizzo. Oh, is it is it is it Lizzo or Rizzo? What's her Lizzo name? Lizzo's the fat black chick, and Rizzo yeah. is the Holocaust denier. <laughs> Sorry, I meant, I meant, I meant Lizzo. <laughs> What a strange world we've had, man. It just keeps, they keep upping the ante on us. You think it can't get funnier. They just keep dropping new elements into the story. <laughs> so funny. Oh, Lizzo, right? Yeah. Where did she come from? Like, it was like overnight. Suddenly she's this phenom. <sighs> uh, just, I mean, people, people say classical music is dead, but I think. <laughs> Lizzo is single-handedly they're bringing back the the great the great yeah you know. like the classical canons on its way back Mozart Beethoven Lizzo it's just all it's just one breath you know I don't wow. know we gotta get the whole gang back together Luke you know what I mean yeah uh, I, I, you know how are we gonna do this how are we gonna like how are we gonna like rekindle the fire, the magic? You know, is it? What's it gonna take? Another, uh, another Trump uh, election? What do you think, policy? Frame Game? What do you think, Frame Game Radio is doing these days? Um, I bet you he's just being a corporate lawyer, raking in top bucks, and wondering why he ever got involved with, <laughs> with social media. <laughs> What do you think he's doing? I, I agree with you. I think he's making uh, good money and he's found other satisfactions in life. But he was a phenomenon. I mean, he yeah, he he was amazing. A meteoric rise and then overnight, just like Martin Luther King, he was taken from us. Too soon. Too I mean, we hardly soon. knew him. <laughs> we, we won't see his like again. We take him too soon, yeah. Oh, just like Biggie, Tubac, Frank, oh, yeah. you know, just gone, gone too soon. So, okay. Um, uh, what what psychological effect have you had being online and being exposed to so many people? I mean, right now there are there are twenty one people live listening to you. Now, what, what kind of yeah. psychological effect does that have on you? I, I can't say it's zero. I can't say it's because yeah. it's definitely like it is a certain community, you know? It's not IRL, but like I said, it's this the it's the everyday nature, it's the it's the ritualistic participation that happens, you know, five days a week, six days a week. It really happens so regularly. And the people you see in the chat, you really feel like you know them. And though, you know, you, you, I've never, you know, 99% of the people in the chat, I don't even know what their faces look like. You know, I wouldn't recognize them in a crowd. But, you know, they have this representation in the chat. And in a strange way, you know, you sort of feel like you know them in a certain sliver of a way. And then, um, 
uh, I'm sort of wandering a bit here, but yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's a new it's style. Like it's, a, it's like cheers. It's, a, it's like cheers. It's a new style of interaction that's equivalent to to going to a bar, like you say, because you know at a bar, you know you know people at a very superficial level, but the regularity builds a certain camaraderie, um, and that's what it feels like. It's sort of a quasi. It's a new style of interaction that there's no precedent for. And um, I think it's a mistake to call it unreal, you know? Yeah. It's it's in this gray zone between real and unreal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, being observed by so many people uh, appears to have significant psychological effects. So high levels of social media use are connected with an increased risk of symptoms of anxiety and depression. So... Do you think that uh, people who post a lot online that uh, they tend to tend to experience much more anxiety and depression? I don't know. I mean, okay, yes. There's a certain style of person that lives online, lives to be online, and whose only experiences are online. And all their references are about things that happen online. That's that's probably not healthy. Um, but there are other people who have IRL jobs who live in the real world, but who don't have sort of kindred spirits in the real world. And so they can't bounce their um, real world observations against anybody because there's nobody in the real world who can really appreciate them. And that's the space that I feel like I occupy where I live in the real world at the same time, the people that I interact with can't really appreciate the, ins the insights or perspective that I have. And the online world provides an outlet for that. And so I, I feel like to that extent, I think it's a healthy experience. Do you, do you feel exposed? Well, I don't really have a channel. I don't really tweet, you know, so I don't feel exposed because I, by design, because I know what um, the consequences of having a base and red pill take, <laughs> you know, living on the internet in perpetuity <laughs> um, can have on my IRL life. So I am, you know, really protective of my IRL life. And I, I you know, I take I take risks that I think are pretty low, but I think younger people don't aren't aware of the magnitude of the risk that they're taking, and relative to the benefit, and I think they get themselves in trouble. Yeah, it's sort of like making porn movies, right? <laughs> like, who's going to see them, bro? Right. <laughs> and then and then your dad goes to work. And, you know, pictures of your, you know, bukkake scene uh, printed up and plastered all over your dad's workplace and all over his car. Yeah. And you thought this amazing, amazing, you know, moment of intimacy was just going to be, you know, shared with a few hundred of your closest followers. Right. Right. Yeah. kids. I don't know what kind of mistakes I would have made had, like, this level of internet technology been available to me when I was in my teens and 20s what kind of stupidity stupidity i would have engaged in i you know i count that among my blessings that 
that was old enough before this took hold. Because, oh God, you know, when we were growing up, Luke, you could you could have a past that could be forgotten, but now it can't be forgotten. So, okay, back to Wired Magazine. So. This professor says he watches things spiral out of control. People receive dozens of notifications every day, and they often feel like they can't escape their online life. I, I don't experience that. I, I, I don't think I've ever experienced, oh, I can't escape my online life. How about you? Uh, I don't experience either because I don't, you know, I don't make a dime from being online. And none of my, you know, it's purely recreation for me. So if I were a streamer and even like, like an Ethan Ralph who, who lives entirely online, his whole online reputation is his bread and butter. And that's just such a precarious place to be. You know, I wouldn't wish that on, I wouldn't want that for myself. And um, so I, I think the anxiety you think about, you experience about, your online presence is directly proportional to your income level. What percentage of your income level is derived online? Have you experienced YouTube to be a gateway drug? I mean, you just start off streaming on YouTube and then you think, oh, you know, I want to go a little harder. I'll do some rumble. And then before you know it, you're, you're posting to BitChute and Odyssey, you know, with the Holocaust deniers. Well, I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about um, what I'd learned from this whole online journey, and the whole HBD thing has been a revelation to me, you know, and it's been sort of one. It's it was it, it, I had never even heard about. It. I mean, prior to uh, two thousand sixteen, I'd never heard the term, you know. And now, having been exposed to it, it has completely put everything into perspective <laughs> for me, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not anything I'm happy about, but it answered so many questions for me, you yeah. know? And, like, it just removed so much anguish and questioning and confusion, right? And, and I didn't really go looking for it. It was just sort of appeared. And um, I didn't realize, I mean, looking back on it, I just see the amount of effort that has gone into not talking about HBD, you know? Yes. And like how uh, assiduously people work to prevent me from considering these ideas. And then through the internet, through YouTube, through, you know, through all this stuff, um, I've gained a clearer understanding of the world, you know, and most people I know don't have that understanding and they don't. And if I even come close to, um, uh, you know, expressing some of the tenets of HPD, they freak out, you know, they don't want to hear this. And it's just weird. Like, um, what a partition, uh, the HBD revelation is in the world. There's either you're either on one side of the wall or the other. And if you're on the other side of the wall, you're quite confused and you're um, so that, so I don't know. I, I went off a bit of a tangent, but um, your original question was, yeah. So spiraling into um, 
conspiracy. So yes, the other part of that though, with HBD, there's also the conspiracy realm, you know, and that is a big trap of the internet. And, but at the same time, you know, I go back and forth on this, like, you know, after the HBD red pill, you sort you sort of, you sort of start thinking that, well, what else have they been hiding from us? <laughs> you know, right. it's a pretty natural leap, yes. you know? So, um, and it opens the door to a lot of like stupidity, such as, you know, flat earths and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, so, I don't know. At the end of the day, I mean, I that happened that to positive... Casey. I mean, that, that so <laughs> happened to Casey. Like, he got a little bit of HBD, then he, he yeah. became convinced that all sorts of things were being hidden from him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You become unmoored. It really, I mean, you know, in a certain, certain sense of the word, I understand why people go to such lengths to hide this from you. Because these questions are very destabilizing. They can destabilize you at the personal level, but collectively they could really destabilize an entire society. Yeah. What if everybody, what if, you know, just, just hypothetically, you know, I know, I, I know what your opinion is, you know, the truth is, is the most important thing, but what if suddenly overnight, everybody was discussing HBD, like the entire <laughs> population yeah. across all IQ levels, right? Yeah. That would be very, very, it would be a very chaotic society. Live streams, man. Those would be awesome live streams. (laughs) I know, but the streets, I don't know. Things could, I don't know. I mean, it would just be a very rocky society. Maybe that's ultimately what's going to happen. And maybe maybe in America, we've postponed this conversation for so long that the pressure that's built up behind it is going to be unleashed someday i don't know how it all resolves but uh people are going to start asking questions i mean we're we're seeing so much i mean you know you've seen the videos like these freakouts at mcdonald's restaurants and things like that these 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 just um despicable displays of 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 human nature you know and you see it once, you see it twice, you see it a third time, you see it 10 times, you see it 100 times. And suddenly, you know, eventually you just have to start asking questions. So have you been watching uh, Legacy, the true story, the Los Angeles Lakers uh, series on Hulu? No. Oh, no. I'm surprised. But no. anyway, in episode five, uh, Jeannie Buss who's the daughter of Dr. Jerry Buss, the guy who, who bought the Lakers. Uh, she's coming off of a very painful divorce, and she's in her early 30s, and she's running operations for the L.A. Lakers, and naturally she thinks, I should pose naked in Playboy. And so she <laughs> she says she, she, was, she was at a time in her life where she just started exploring her sexuality. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> what do you think when you when you hear women talking about? Oh, I was just exploring my sexuality. So. <laughs> I honestly like. Um, yeah, that's the other like you know you talk about the HBD red pill, but then there's sort of the the um, the women red pill. The women question, you know, the, the WQ, question. yeah, you know, 
that was another revelation for me. And um, it's also very clarifying, but also basically undiscussable in polite society. And um, it reminds me, like, uh, back in, like, um, I want to say maybe 2008, 2007, or something like that. I was living on in Boston, and um, there was this famous race in the summertime from, like, Martha's Vineyard to Providence, Rhode Island, or something like that, or maybe Nantucket to Providence, a very short sailboat race, you know? And it was a big deal that, you know, so these various sailing teams, and I know nothing about sailing, you know, and, and but it was a big race, and, like, there was this big, all this hubbaloo, because one of these race boats was was captained and staffed by all women, right? There's <laughs> a dozen participants or so. And then one of the boats was piloted and, and staffed by all women. And their boat ran aground. <laughs> it was completely like, you know, it was reported that just hushed up and swept under the rock. <laughs> whole story. But people don't, I don't know, it's just, it's so, people cannot understand, they can't wrap their minds around gender difference in America, you know, and what's it going to take, you know, what kind of reckoning is it going to take before, you know, this, this question is reconsidered? So you heard about the nuclear explosion at Chernobyl 40 years ago, and there was yeah. an HBO series on it, and there was only one character in the series that was invented. And that is the heroic female scientist. Like every other character in the series is based on a real person. The heroic yeah. female scientist in the series is wholly invented. <laughs> I don't know. Because you know what? It's like this, this works because, you know, women are the bottleneck, right? They're the, they're, you know, sperm are cheap, eggs are expensive, right? And so people are just, genetically programmed to defer to the shrieks and howls of women, you know? This runs deep in our evolutionary past. And uh, uh, I guess, you know, previous older societies had learned how to contain this impulse. And we decided to let the genie out of the bottle this past hundred years, and here we are. And that's a good thing. <laughs> Please give. Put your NPR contribution. Yes. How much? Yeah. How much are you giving this year, Luke? Well, if you give over fifty dollars, you get a, a free copy of uh, John Bradshaw's, you know, healing your wounded inner child. <laughs> All the more. So you should give double the amount. Get two copies. Give one for the holidays. Now, Jeannie Buss, now Jerry Buss, her, her father, he was a notorious playboy. So she grew up with her dad, you know, screwing every hot check in sight. And so that resonates with me because most of the women I've dated have been, have had fathers who were sex addicts. Like they had fathers who had like a whole garage filled with porn or they had fathers who were, you know, out there banging and somehow those women always end up with me and I, I always end up with them. So Jeannie Buss, you'd be surprised to know, hasn't been after to sustain any relationships. 
Uh, she, you know, has flings and she poses naked for Playboy and she's you know, very dedicated to her work. But the, you know, the same type of person who's interested in exploring her sexuality by posing nude for, for Playboy magazine, surprise, surprise, is not able to actually sustain intimacy. Sounds like she's crying out for Luke Ford. Yes. Well, she's uh, five years older than me, so. Uh, well, that's that's a no. It's a non-starter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. I, I just don't find like... women over forty attractive. No, I know it's a sad thing. You know, it's funny. I'll tell you this: like um, this ex-girlfriend of mine. Uh, she reached out to me and you know we were chit-chatting but it was all like you know text you know and the picture was a picture from like 20 years ago right yeah and we were chatting we we're chatting and you know maybe there were glimmerings of getting back together kind of stuff you know and then um accidentally she'd like put her camera on you know and i you know i saw like I saw the reality of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did that affect you? I lost all interest. <laughs> all interest. Like, it was amazing, like, how, like, uh, primal and primitive my reaction was. You know, because the image in my head and the image that was uh, uh, in reality were so discordant. So... I, I, I couldn't believe it because I saw it as it was happening. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I kept, I mean, I completely, my interest level just went through the floor, dude, through the floor. I had a friendship with this woman, Kathy Sipe, and she was, I think she was five years older than me. But, you know, at certain angles, you know, she, she still looked good. So I would try to talk myself into feeling, you know, romantic towards her. And, you know, we'd, we'd be at a party and I think, you know, she, she looks kind of good, but I could never, I could never go there. I, I try to psych myself up. I, I've done that with a lot of older women. I tried to, you know, psych, psych myself up. I, I, yeah, I started talking to a woman from my childhood. Like we're really connecting and I'm trying to psych myself up. Yeah, I could, I could find this woman attractive. And, and then I just, I just give up on the the conversation i just no i just i just can't yeah it's like exactly it's like it, it is completely like beyond rational control like the energy is either there or it's not you know it's a button you can press or it's just not there <laughs> and so um I don't know. This this happened relatively recently, and uh, I'm sort of still processing it. So, um, the other but, thing yeah. is, when I knew Kathy, she was dying of lung cancer. So, mm. how would that affect your erotic attraction for a woman? Actually, that very experience happened to me, Luke. That very experience. Um, uh, she has now since. Uh, departed shall we say um <clears throat> that was weird like um like i felt i should do her you know, yeah to say goodbye <laughs> right and then then i thought oh, that's just so weird and confusing <laughs> 
yeah, so what did, did she ultimately die? Yeah, yeah, she she died back in 2007, but we were like best friends from 2002 to 2007 and and at the same time though I was dating, you know, gorgeous women. You know, yeah. I, I would bring these women to a party and like, you know, every man would try to fuck them. But none of them could touch the level of connection that I had with Kathy. Cuz you were both so damaged. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't fair. And and like these women, uh, Kathy would talk to them, and she'd go, "Oh, you know, I feel my brain slowing down when I when I try to talk to the the women that you're you're, you're dating." And and I tell Kathy, "Oh, you you spoiled me for other women," and she says, "You don't know how right that is," but I just couldn't couldn't cross over. I mean, I was dating eights and nines. Mm. from from 2002 to 2007 i mean i was dating ex porn stars i was dating very attractive women and and i couldn't well, give that up well right because there's sort of like there's hot women right and there's this initial sort of attraction yeah and they and sound that, much smarter when you're having sex with them yeah <laughs> but then you're like you're talking to, and then they sort of pronounce, mispronounce a word. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you're like, it's so infuriating. You're like, oh no, can I deal with this? Or they, really do- <laughs> or they don't realize their place. So I take them to these cool gatherings and they start hitting up these other writers and ask them to lunch, but they're not on the same level. And so, you know, these other. <laughs> You know, these highly accomplished, you know, women writers that, uh, you know, they write for the, the New Yorker, the Los Angeles Times, you know, very prestigious publications. And my, you know, beautiful girlfriend who has a blog uh, yeah. is trying to, you know, climb the, the greasy pole of success. And they mm. just, they just loathe her. But all the guys <laughs> are just totally entranced. <laughs> So she she didn't know her place your your date your yeah your, she, your she nine, didn't your eight or nine she thought she was a uh, New Yorker when she didn't she didn't realize she didn't recognize her place in the hierarchy no no she she did not and she also didn't realize that I'm not the type of guy who's gonna drive ten miles to bring her soup and crackers when she's sick <laughs> and she never got over that it really ha- ha- held that against me. <laughs> But I'm mm. just not that guy. I mean, I'm not no, Mr. You don't, you empath. Don't, you don't let friends stay over in your place, bro. You're like you're yeah. you're aloof. You're a yeah, I'm kind of aloof. <laughs> I'm not Mr. You know? Hospitable. Right, right, right. Oh, anyway. All right, Luke. I, I'm getting. Uh, I, I think I have to wrap it up. Okay, blessings, bro. Thank you, time. All right, blessings. All okay, right, take time. care. All right, sure. Shalom, shalom. Let's uh, let's let's depart this. Let's shuffle off this uh, mortal coil here. Oh man, I wanted to wanted to play some of the, the sweet stylings of of Lizzo. I mean, such such great memories here. But uh, let me get some Lizzo. And then Hang the punchline on. was like, "But I'm still going to be your next mayor." So fast in seventeen states. <laughs> He's putting all these in quotation marks.
<laughs> and then it, then the punchline he would and he would do that for like 10 minutes and then the punchline was like but i'm still going to be your next mayor so it was, i maybe i misremembered everything it was actually pretty i thought it was hilarious talking Granted, about I was like, it was hilarious the other aspect of escalation. so it's like apparently i didn't go to harvard now did i and apparently i'm a convicted sexual assaulter <laughs> he was like he was like escalate my god somebody looking it up because i i want to see that yeah i got it here yeah matt and this is phil Harmon's skits too yeah, it was Matt who lives in a van down by the river. Okay, this is the late Greg Greg Gerardo. I read uh, his his biography. He died of a drug overdose in twenty. I'm racist. I'm saying it's just something. I'm not, I'm all right with it. I'm not racist. I got a friend who's Mexican, Filipino. I think. I, whatever. Fucking. <laughs> but then there are people that genuinely aren't. That I guess Hillary Clinton got in trouble during the campaign because she said that white people wouldn't support Barack Obama during a general election. White people wouldn't support Barack Obama. And that sounded like, like something that Democrats shouldn't say. So she started using code words for white people, which was 50 times worse. Because instead of saying white people, she started saying hardworking Americans. Oh, just makes me sick. Hardworking Americans are not gonna support Barack Obama. You know what I mean? Hardworking Americans, you know, the ones that don't run fast and don't have giant cocks. Am I... Am I putting too fine a point on this? So sad. So sad. My God. All right. Lizzo bringing back classical music. Mm. What a flutist. Beautiful. Powerful. Bye-bye.